Well, we want to open the Word of God together, uh, and we're going to go to Romans 8 in just a moment. Before we do that, I would ask you to join me in praying together for God's blessing over our time in the Word. Father, as we have been singing, the great hope of our hearts is that a day is approaching where we will be united with you and the rest of your family. We are resident aliens here on earth, as your word tells us, and we feel that. We feel that perpetual restlessness in our souls that we're not really home, not really established and settled Things in this life, in this world, are not the way they ought to be. And until we are gathered in your household and all of the suffering and confusion and pain and sorrow of this life is behind us, only then will we truly begin to live. Our hope is fixed in you. And we have hope because you sent your only begotten Son into the world the eternal Christ, the one who from before the foundation of the world purposed to come and to become uh, a man, to take upon himself all that we are and in particular our sin. And though he was sinless, he took that sin all the way to the cross that was ours and bore the punishment that was ours and fulfilled every requirement so that we might be saved by your grace. Oh, how we ask that today you would make the presence and work of Christ real to us, that you would establish your authoritative dominion in our souls and in our minds, and that the eternal purposes that you are revealing to us and the great promises that you are giving would would shape our faith, would grow it, would change us, so that whether we are in the midst of suffering that is inexplicable and confusing to us or bearing uh, weight on our soul that we feel like we have no more strength for, that in all of this we would see that you are good and powerful uh, to command all of that for a really good purpose in us and eternal purposes of glory for Jesus and the church. We need the Spirit's work in us. We need to have our minds quieted and centered, uh, freed from so many cares, questions, and and, and confusing thoughts that would, uh, would diminish the beauty and power of your truth. And I ask that you would free us at this time. We also need to be sanctified, cleansed uh, from our sinfulness by the powerful blood of the Lord Jesus Christ through the work of the Spirit. So we ask that you would forgive us for our sins and cleanse us and make us whole. We were singing those thoughts and prayers earlier, but we continue with them, Lord, and just trust you that you would show mercy to us and make us whole. So give us eyes that see your truth as it is. Give us ears that hear your voice as you speak to us this morning. Give us hearts that are submissive and sensitive to your will and give us wills that are obedient to all that you command of us. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. How powerful is God? In the book of Romans, we have 
heard Paul explain him and, and, and write of him as the creator God who spoke all that exists, spoke it into existence. Didn't work with pre-existing matter as some theories of our origin would say. In the beginning, as Genesis was, says, in the beginning, God created all that is. It's hard for us to fathom, but he's powerful enough to create you, me, all that we have discovered and uncovered in this world, in the universe, and there's probably a lot more that he hasn't shown us just yet. He's powerful as creator. We've also heard Paul explain that in the course of of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through the sacrifice of Christ in particular, God is powerful enough to actually cleanse away our sin, to forgive us. Only God can forgive sins in that way. He's powerful enough to actually adopt us and make us his own for eternity. He's powerful in all kinds of ways, but in this next portion of Romans 8, there's really something quite extraordinary that, that Paul will touch on, and that has to do with our suffering, the things that really create conflict in our souls. We've been looking at this over the last week or two, and I would invite you to go to Romans 8 with me this morning once again. If you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, you'll find this on page 944. And I'd like to begin reading. Actually, I'm going to go back and grab a little bit that we had uh, looked at before, and then, and then we'll have the main text, which is just three verses this morning. But for those of you who are new with us, as we've been looking at Romans 8, it begins with this really great truth that there is therefore now no condemnation remaining for those who are in Jesus Christ. All that sin that you know you're guilty of, everything that just weighs down your soul and all those reminders that you're not a very good person, uh, the Lord deals with that in Jesus. And he says, when you come to me in faith and I forgive you and justify you, there's no condemnation left. At the end of the chapter, he's going to say, not only is there no condemnation, but there's no separation from me as your God and Father. And in between, he addresses this issue of our struggle with Uh, our present condition says, I've sent my spirit to dwell in you. You are, in fact, children of God, joint heirs with Christ in the middle portion. And then he begins to unfold this remarkable truth about a future glory that is coming. And you you could go back to verse 18 and read that. We're not going to go all the way back to that. But he acknowledges that there's real suffering, and, and it's confusing to us. It's hard for us. But then he says in verse 26, That the Spirit, notice that's a capital S, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. And what is that particular weakness? Well, here Paul says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Sometimes you're suffering. The pain is so difficult, so confusing that you say, I don't even know how to pray anymore. And God says, it's okay. My Spirit who dwells in you will pray for you. And he does. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There's no confusion in the communication within the Trinity. Now verse 28, and this is is where I want you to pay close attention this morning. We know that for those who love God, all things 
work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, that has reference to Jesus, the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, a couple of big thoughts for you to categorize these three really important verses. And the first is this. God is sovereignly at work for our good in all things. Now, first of all, look at verse 28 again and, and notice it, it's God at work. It's not you with your best effort and intention working. It's not the church or pastors or spiritual leaders who go to work to accomplish something really good. It's not our political representatives or the power brokers in economies around the world. No, it's God who is actually at work. And Paul says, we know this. And, and contrast that with what he had just said, like, we don't always know how to pray. And so even in the confusion of suffering and uncertainty of how to pray, we can be certain of this. We know, Paul says, that in all things. Now, the immediate context is the sufferings of this present age, the groanings that those sufferings produce. But Paul has just broadened it beyond this. And now he is actually saying that God's work is so comprehensive, so powerful, so sovereign, if you will, that we can include all things in the life of a believer, all things that you and I as followers of Jesus are experiencing this morning, all of the hard things, all of the confusing things, all of the difficult things, all of the painful things, all things are being ordered by God, orchestrated by God in such a way, and that's what the word working together means, that God causes all things to work together for a purpose of his design. So God is at work, but let, let's be clear on this. He's at work only for his followers in this way. Th that doesn't mean he, he has like shut the door and not, gonna, not willing to include anyone else in this, but this is an important qualification and distinction because Paul is not saying, and, and this would be a popular opinion that you would hear reflected in conversations and music and literature that, you know, things just have a way of working out in the end. You know, we kind of like, try to encourage our, our hearts that, you know, in the end, life will, will be good. That's not exactly what Paul is saying. He's actually saying this is true for those who've put their faith in Jesus Christ. And a quick return to chapters 1 and 2 and 3 would remind us that there are those who, because of rejecting God first as creator, and then rejecting his offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, actually positioned themselves to experience wrath. Do you remember the warning of Romans 2, verse 5? Paul actually says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then in verse 8, he says, there will be wrath and fury. Into verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Please don't sit here and delude yourself into thinking that, you know, good just eventually comes around for all of us if we do enough good or, you know, we just have a little faith. The question is, what is your faith in? More specifically, who is your faith in? 
See, this promise is actually limited to those who acknowledge their guilt before God, who repent of their sins and put their faith in the work of Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. That's the qualifier that Paul puts before us, that God is at work for believers. But now go back to Romans 8. He also says those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. That little phrase, those who love God, doesn't mean it's all up to you to prove your worthiness of receiving this kind of good work. No, it, it is just a general reference that when, when God moves into a life, because he first loves us, John says, we love him. It, it's just an ordinary description of any follower of Jesus. There's love for God. Now he gets a little more specific though and says, those who are called according to his purpose. And wonderfully, this second phrase, as one author writes, contains the real reason why Christians can know that all things work for good. And and then the commentator goes on to paraphrase it this way. We know that all things are working for good for those of us who love God, and we know this is so because we who love God are also those who have been called or summoned by God to enter into relationship with him. And we'll touch more on that in just a moment. Called according to his purpose. You see, it, it, it takes the focus off of you and me and our resolve to be followers of Jesus and what we're doing uh, that, that, that might impress God or impress others. It's not about any of that at all. It actually has to do with something that God began to purpose and work through long ago. So God is at work and is at work for believers, but real simply, God is at work for the good of believers. And he's speaking of ultimate good, not just little touches of good uh, along the way. And we should be thankful for the little small touches of good that we experience, but what Paul has in view is your ultimate destiny, my ultimate destiny. And all of those things that are sometimes difficult to understand and process right now, particularly the the suffering, the hard things, the turmoil, the pressure that you and I live with, Paul is saying that there is nothing in this world that is not intended by God to assist us on our earthly pilgrimage and to bring us safely and certainly to the glorious destination of that pilgrimage. That's how powerful he is. So powerful that he can take the things that you feel like will be your undoing So powerful that he can take the injustices that you have experienced in life and turn them for good. So powerful that he can take the chronic illness or the financial collapse or the the dissolution of a close family relationship and ultimately accomplish something beautiful, something that will last for eternity, something that you you will be able to look back on one day and say, that's part of what God used to get me to glory. Now, I know that if, if we just left it there, we, we might say, eh, really? Before we go on with the text, I, I wonder if, if, if you have a special secret list that you don't tell people about. You say, what are you talking about? Well, everybody has to-do lists, right? How many of you are list makers? 
Like when you really, when you really need to disorganize your life, your thinking, and kind of bring some sanity. I mean, you like pull out a piece of paper or you have some special app. We all create lists, don't we? And sometimes we rank those, like this is really important and I need to get to this, but I can't even think about that until I do these 17 things ahead of it. So we all have to-do lists, but you know what? There's a secret list that many of us carry as well. And, and I would just call it the cares and concerns list. It's the stuff that you might not write down, but it's there. It's the stuff that many of us would wish would go away. But it's not as simple as saying, well, if I do this, I can mark that one off the list. Or if I take action in some particular way, and it tends to run along the lines that, that you might expect. And I, you know, I, we're all weary, but there's like a new wave of concern rising right now, isn't there? And, and my inbox and other social media platforms and communication apps and all that are filled with friends and family who have very different opinions on what's going on and how we ought to respond. And just this morning, I saw another must-watch video. Gotta see this. Gotta spread the word. I'm like, oh, Lord, I, I, I can't do this. I don't know. Marriage and family, that's always on the list. Those close relationships, some by blood, some by covenant agreement, our community, our nation. And a lot of those things are not simply out of our control to do anything about them, but as what raises the level of anxiety is that those are categories that in and of themselves are out of control. And in some of those categories, we actually bear pain. We've been wounded by others, or we've been frustrated or mistreated. And what Paul is doing for our blessing and benefit is to hang the powerful truth of Romans 8.28 over all of that and say, dear brother, dear sister, because your God is so powerful and so good, you, and, and has purposes that you can't fully comprehend at this point, you can be confident, you can know for certain that for those who love God, all of those things are, are being brought together. Like, it, like, like God is writing this beautiful symphony and bringing it together for your good. That's awesome. There are powerful people who've walked planet Earth, but there's nobody who's ever lived on planet earth who had this kind of power to take even the bad stuff, the suffering, the evil, and make it submit to their ultimate purposes for good. But that's exactly what God does. So whatever you and I are presently experiencing that falls under this heading of all things, God wants us to place it under this beautiful and powerful word of promise and put it into this perspective that he has that all of those things he is working together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Will you do that today? I've been blessed through the years. There's a devotional guide written by a pastor named Milton Vincent. Uh, it's titled A Gospel Primer for Christians. And there's a portion of one paragraph there. I'm going to back up and read a couple of sentences ahead of that. But Milton writes, the gospel is not just one piece of good news that 
fits into my life somewhere among all the bad, I realize instead that the gospel makes genuinely good news out of every other aspect of my life, including my severest trials. The good news about my trials is that God is forcing them to bow to his gospel purposes and do good unto me by improving my character and making me more conformed to the image of Christ. And that's what carries us to the great second heading of this little portion, that God is not simply at work for good in the lives of believers, but God is sovereignly at work for great purposes. Now, there are a couple of them that are mentioned, and in one sense we could say there's a twofold purpose that Paul begins to uh, share with us in verse 29. And I want to say just b- before we walk through these verses, it, it has become an increasing Sadness to my heart that often these next two verses are used as fodder for theological debate. And and we're going to touch on some terms that are discussed, if not debated and argued over as to what they really mean. But I'm going to ask that you, with me, submit to what God is actually saying and recognize that these words have real definitions and real meaning. And if we get embroiled in some kind of debate... Uh, over some theological nuances, we'll actually miss the greater good and and message that God is is trying to put before us. Some of you would say, "What, what kind of debates are you talking about? If you don't know, just leave it there, all right? And if you ask me afterwards, well, tell me about those debates, I'll say, no. Because on a personal testimony, I, in my younger years, wasted a lot of really precious time and uh, got crossways in a couple of relationships because I was sure that I was right and my friend or associate was also sure, you know, he or she was right and um, we just irritated one another. We didn't bless and build up one another in the faith. So, now, purpose one, conformity to Christ. Look Look at the text. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose For those whom he, that is God the Father, foreknew, he also predestined, and we're going to come back to these five key words that tell us about what God is doing, but notice this first, to be conformed to the image of his Son. There's the first purpose that Paul reveals to us, and that conformity has to do with bringing you and me into the same shape, if you will, the same character as Christ himself. Now, we're not going to become God's. That's that's not at all what the gospel is about. But we are going to be conformed to Jesus Christ. And so remember before salvation, as Paul was reminding us in the early chapters of Romans, we were actually conformed to Adam, the first man. Conformed to him in his sinful nature. Conformed to him in his slavery to sin and the spiritual darkness uh, that he walked in. But now there's a powerful work of God underway and God's purpose is revealed and guaranteed. And the first aspect of it is this, to shape us into the same character or image of his one-of-a-kind son. How remarkable. And, and remember, the larger context, even our sufferings are part of God's good work to conform us to Jesus. Now look at a second thing here. In order that he, this has reference to Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, Paul is not writing about physical birth order because we know that even though God the Son came into the world, we refer to that as the incarnation, though the Holy Spirit miraculously 
conceived that child in Mary's womb. We're, we're not talking about a physical birth order. Some of you were the firstborn of your family because you were the first one that your parents came together uh, in relationship and conceived and brought into the world. What Paul is actually talking about goes back to something that Matt preached just a couple of weeks ago from Colossians 1.15 where the same terminology is used to describe Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. And that speaks of Jesus as the supreme one over creation because you can't be the creator of all things as Jesus is and yourself be created. Do you see how illogical that is? Um, and we know from multiple passages that Jesus is the creator of all. So similarly in Romans, Paul is not indicating that Jesus is himself a naturally uh, conceived and birthed son as everybody else on planet earth. He's not, he's not bringing the incarnation uh, in view. Paul uses this particular term, firstborn, to describe the preeminence of Jesus as the perfect man. And again, what was lost by our sin in the fall as we sinned with Adam and Eve long ago, God is in the process of restoring. He's creating a new family, but he's doing it through spiritual means. So there is a powerful thought here concerning the resurrected Christ as the pattern of a new humanity or a new family, if you will, and by God's work of rescuing many of us from our sins, and because he uses that word many, Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. By this spiritual work that God is doing, he's creating a new family. I'm so thankful for that word many. I'll just throw this out for your consideration that, that with reference to God's work and, and what we're about to step into that takes us into eternity past where he foreknew and then predestined and now in this present age calls and justifies that it's always with many in view. Many, many, many. And you come to Revelation and where John describes some of those massive worship scenes at the end of the age in heaven. He says things like this, I saw a crowd that no man could number. And again, sometimes in the little theological debates, people get hung up on the fact, well, if God you know, made that choice, then, then how, can, how can he put those limits on there? And I say, you know what? You don't, you don't see God's foreknowledge all the way through to the end bringing just like this little sliver of humanity into this place of privilege. You see God working in a powerful way where he says people from every tribe, every tongue, every family, every nation will be part of the brotherhood of Jesus. He's creating a family. Now, that is great assurance in and of itself, isn't it? That God has purposed to do something here to conform us to Jesus, that he's creating a new family of Christ, but there's, a, there's another thought here, so let's continue. And let's look at this, this unbroken chain of God's work, if you will. The unbroken work of God also brings powerful assurance to our hearts. And so now he begins to strain together five particular uh, verbs of God's action, and this is designed to bring assurance to those who are suffering and saying, am I in the right place? Did I sign up for something that I really wasn't fully aware of? And if God is love and God is great and God is sovereign and all this, why does, why does my life hurt so much the way it does? Well, that's where God comes through the Apostle Paul and says, let me give you perspective on this. And I want to put that image in front of you because this, is, this little portion of Scripture has been referred to by uh, a number of saints through the ages as the golden chain of salvation. And I couldn't find a picture of a golden chain, not one of substance. 
Because you can't think jewelry hanging around your neck. I mean, you need to think of like powerful links. And I looked at that and I said, it's not gold, but it looks like a sturdy chain. And, and these are just five of the links. I think there are actually many more we can make a case for that. But we're going to begin with these five because these are the five that Paul talks about. And the first one is God foreknows. It, it is so much more than just God having advanced knowledge of all the things that are going to happen. And you can trace this term through the Old Testament into the New and see that it's more than just God having an awareness of what's going to happen. He uses this term uh, through the prophet Amos in the Old Testament and says to Israel, you only have I foreknown of all the families on the earth. And he's speaking about the special relationship that they've entered to because because God did something to bring them into relationship in advance. The, maybe the most powerful passage where this is used, at least in my heart and soul, is Acts 2.23, where one of the apostles is preaching primarily to a Jewish audience after the, the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You see the forward momentum there? He's saying, this is what God purposed. This is what God planned. This is what God foreknew. Then he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God was behind it all, but you actually have guilt and culpability because you put an innocent man to death. So the plan and foreknowledge result, though, in the actual deliverance of Christ to death. It's not just that God said, well, you know, as I look into the corridors of time and history that is yet to be played out, I see that my son is going to be crucified. No, he planned it and purposed it, and that's part of what informs our understanding of foreknowledge. Now, notice that God's foreknowledge, that his entering into a special relationship with the saints results in something, and that brings us to the second link that Paul puts on the paper. He has predestined us specifically to be conformed to the image of his son, but predestined means to determine something in advance. Predestiny is what he's speaking of. And Paul always uses this truth to comfort people who are hurting. He always uses this truth to bring assurance to those who are struggling with how hard life is and confusing circumstances are. He does it in the book of Ephesians, that little letter that he wrote to the saints. In the opening chapter, verse four, he says to those saints, many of whom were struggling in great hardship, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. It's hard to wrap our minds around this. And yet, in other ways, it's not. I know many people even, when we start talking about foreknowledge and, and predestination, want to even come back and say, well, how do I know if I'm predestined? God never tells you to ask, to find an answer to that question before you come to him in faith. He actually says to you and me, repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. The gospel call goes into all the world. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's not a preliminary application or interview process that has to be filled out. And if you get to that really scary box at the bottom where it's like, oh, I guess I didn't meet that foreknowledge requirement or predestination. It's just not put that way. I'll admit that these, these are terms that put me back on my heels a little bit when I think that there's a God in heaven who has the exclusive right to do what he says in this passage he does. 
But let me ask it this way. Would you want anybody else other than a perfectly good, all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving, all-gracious, all-merciful God to have the, the authority to make this choice? Is there anybody else you can think is more qualified to foreknow and predetermine things? I can't. But notice that as certain as that foreknowledge is from eternity past and the predestination is, notice the third link in the chain, Paul says he also called. Now you must not think of this call as, as God extending an invitation like we extend invitations to birthday parties or other you know, significant events. Because the, the, the choice would ultimately lie with the one receiving the invitation. You know, can I go? Do I want to go? Does it fit into the family calendar? Is there something more important that I have to do? But the kind of call that, that Paul is referring to here, and, and when you see it unfold in other places in the Scripture, is a divine summons. It's God issuing a call that is so powerful, so compelling, that those who receive this particular kind of call must respond. And the saints who are reading this letter can all look back and say, I remember that call. Do you, do you remember hearing God speak to you so powerfully that you said, I have to turn to him? Some of you weren't looking for him at all, and it came to you much like the, the Apostle Paul. You kind of had your Damascus Road experience. You're just minding your own business, and maybe it wasn't even good business necessarily, but God just interrupted your life and said, I am God, you need me, and, and you collapsed on your face before him, much like Paul did. Others of you, in a process over many months or even years, were seeking truth, and you were reading all kinds of religious material, but there was a day when you heard the gospel, whether through, through reading it on the page, or perhaps a friend or family member was sharing it, and it's like the light went on in your soul, and you heard, as it were, the voice of God say, come to me. Now, there's a general call that goes out into all the world, but this is not that general call. This is a divine summons backed by the eternal purpose and counsel of God Almighty. And, and notice specifically, called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? To create a new family and fill up his household with many brothers for Jesus. Do you think God's going to leave that to chance? Do you think his love for Jesus would leave some of these things just to kind of how, if I can put it this way, you know, how the, how the cards play out? No, the father loves the one-of-a-kind son far more than that. He is foreknowing, predestining, calling, and now look at this fourth word, and this, this is the first four chapters of Romans, isn't it? He also justified. We, we've already covered this. Romans 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight. Uh, chapter 3, 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift. Chapter 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. And then gloriously in chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we've been exploring and learning all that is included in that great work of justification, but that is the fourth link, and God does it. And that leads us to the fifth link that Paul puts before us, and he's been touching on this already, but notice it, it's past tense, isn't it? He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified, but you say, wait a second, we're not glorified yet. 
right from the human perspective, but from God's vantage point, it's as good as done. Do you see how God's work and purposes span time? He just, he just pulled you out of August 1st, 2021, and said, you need to see even your suffering and, and all of the unanswered questions from the eternal perspective. And he's giving that to us here through this golden chain of salvation. The glory we hope for is nothing less than conformity to Jesus Christ. I was thinking earlier about some of what is included in that, and there are uh, portions of Scripture like 1 Corinthians 15, 49 that say, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And then you might ask, well, what does that include? Well, Paul speaks very specifically in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44, about receiving bodies that are no longer susceptible to corruption, but they are now characterized by imperishability. He says you will be raised in glory, raised in power, that you will receive a spiritual body. And what was once before referred to as a natural body, it, it doesn't mean that you're going to have this like immaterial, uh, ethereal existence at that particular point. No, rather it is a, a spiritual body that is characterized in a new way. One author writes, completely subject to the will of the Holy Spirit and responsive to the Holy Spirit's guidance. So it will not only be physically perfect in every way, you'll never have to worry about uh, a, a dread disease or some kind of bodily weakness or some kind of mental illness, but it will be of a spiritual nature that will allow you to enjoy everything that God is and everything that is beautiful and holy and righteous about the new heavens and the new earth. That's what awaits us when we speak of glory. And that's what God says, I have purposed from long ago, before this world existed, before you existed, to do this in order that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. And you and I say, but I'm not glorified yet. And he says, I know, but it's a done deal. Any of you ever have an opportunity to ride trains long distances? I'm sure some of you have. Any of you do it as, you know, like train hopping? You know what I'm talking about? I remember a number of years ago in South Carolina learning that there is essentially like this secret club of grown men who knew the, the, the uh, train schedule and they knew which ones they could ride long distances sometimes, but occasionally they would ride from, our town was Greenville and about 30 minutes away was Spartanburg. And these guys would actually hop the train and uh, ride, you know, up to Spartanburg or sometimes beyond and then catch one back. And I just, I mean, that, that, that was a little bit appealing to me, but it sounds dangerous. It is illegal. Uh, <laughs> we would not encourage you, but like, this was a thing. And you know, a train like that, when you're on it, you're not getting off until it stops at a destination, right? The better way to travel is pay the fare, like do the legitimate thing. Sit inside in a real seat where it's designed for your comfort and safety. But I think of this not only as a golden chain, but I think of it something like a train. And once God, if we can put it this way, the engineer gets this train rolling, those five things are not stopping points along the way. You get on that train by faith, 
and receive all that he is and does for you, and he says, welcome, final stop, glory. And where we're actually headed, and I just, I could not figure out a way to preach all the way to the end of the chapter today. But where God is about to take us now is, is deeper into that assurance that once you're his, he's keeping you. And there is no separation. There is no getting off point for the people of God until we reach glory. Doesn't that hearten you? When I think, when I stand here and look at you as an assembly, I know some of you are first-time guests so I don't mean to exclude you at all, but in time, as we got to know each other, I'm sure we would add you to this list, but as I know this Gospel Hope Church family, there's not one individual or family here who doesn't suffer in some really significant ways. There's not one person here whose life is perfect, and it would be real easy for us as a church family to lose heart. Some of you live with such great pressure on your souls, and, and as I pray for you, as our pastoral team prays for you, one of the things we pray is that God would strengthen you so that your faith would not fail. And I'm persuaded he will, whether I pray for it or not, but I'm gonna pray, and we should pray for one another. Gospel hope doesn't exist because we've all figured it out, and our lives are just so you know, amazing and so rich with blessings and, and you know, boatloads of money and you know, there's no sickness or disease here. No, part of the reason we come together is because we say, this journey is tough right now, but our hope is fixed in Jesus. Glory is coming. There are so many really powerful applications that flow out of that, those five words. But I'm just gonna touch on a few here at the end. And I found this quotation beautiful. This is from an author and commentator who is with the Lord now. I've long profited from him. John Stott is his name. But he, he writes of this passage that a right understanding of this doctrine of God's sovereign and good work promotes humility, not arrogance, assurance, not apprehension, responsibility, not apathy, holiness, not complacency, and mission, not privilege. And I've been meditating on those five words, and I'm telling you right now, do you, you know one of the reasons in our heart of hearts? I think all of us, here's the proof that most of us really do believe that God is sovereign from start to finish. Here, here's proof number one. Those of you who know him personally, you give him thanks that he saved you. We didn't sing any hymns today that say, aren't we glad that we chose God? And we never will if somebody were to write them. We gave God all the praise, right? Because we got it. We, we realize we, we are lost and deserve God's condemnation and wrath, but that's not what we got. Praise God. He saved us. The second thing is we keep praying to him, don't we? And what do we pray? We pray, God, would you save my husband, my wife, my child, my friend, my coworker? Would you, would you work in their hearts? And we pray in part because, especially on those, on, on those relationships where we've had conversations and we feel like, we've said all that we know to say. We realize it's not just about one human being persuading another human being to repent and believe. God has to do a work. But this passage reminds me, God says, I do a work. Been at it a long time. I'll keep doing that work. And so part of my part of my heart feels like, you know, this is refueling time where God is saying, Danny, because of all this, can you trust me not just for your soul but for the work uh, here at Gospel Hope in the valley? And I say, oh, yes, I can. 
And, and I've had great joy to pray this week and to pray in particular even with some of those terminologies. Like, God, would you call people? I've prayed it today. So part of me hopes and even expects that there would be somebody here today who would just have this profound sense like, I, I know that Danny guy was talking, but I, God was speaking to me. Praise God. We should expect that. We should pray in faith. God, issue the divine summons. Call my spouse. Call my child. Call my neighbor. Call my coworker today. And assurance. Oh, there's so much rest that begins to flow out of this. We're going to work hard but we're not gonna feel like if we don't do this perfectly, nothing's gonna happen. If I don't present the gospel perfectly, they, they might not believe it. God's never said that your perfect presentation of the gospel is the way that he saves people. But he did say, you are my witnesses. So we do need to speak of Jesus. So there is assurance, responsibility, holiness, because God's purpose is for me to be like Jesus. And he does call you and me to obey. We don't just go out and live any old way we want, saying, well, after all, you know, I got on the train. Mm. You could actually demonstrate that you're not actually on God's train if you live in sin and rebellion and indifference to the things of God. And mission, oh, what a great mission. What a privilege that God uses ordinary people like you and me to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And out of that ordinary proclamation, he really does issue the divine summons. Powerful assurance. Because there's a powerful work done by a powerful God. Let's pray together. Father, we give thanks to you, our God, our creator, our king. We give you thanks that you are creating a new humanity. We give you praise that you chose ordinary people like us as the first fruits to be saved in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. We praise you that through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, you have raised up churches just like this one all around the world. You've called us through your gospel to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You've called us because of this great work of Christ and his unchangeable character to stand firm, to hold to these gospel truths that you have taught us. Our prayer this morning is that our Lord Jesus Christ himself, our God and our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace would comfort each heart here and establish us in every good work and word. As you remain in a spirit of prayer for just a moment with your heads bowed, I want to ask, as I do each week, friend, if you are here today and say, I need to have some questions answered, or I would love to have a follow-up conversation with you or someone else from Gospel Hope, would you just let me know by raising your hand just, just between us? And I promise I will not call you out, but I'll make a mental note of it and I'll look for you right after the service and we can try to find a time to talk either today or in the coming days. But you say, Danny, um, I do think I need to talk through some things. Thank you. Yep, thank you. Let's just try to make a point to 
see each other and inconspicuously we'll, we'll find a time to talk. Thank you. Thank you very much. For those of you who say, Danny, I, I have put my faith in Jesus Christ and while not perfect, I am seeking to honor him in my life and go forward with him, but I've let my fears really get the better of me and I've lost sight of the fact that God is so good that he, and so powerful that he really is able to take even the hard things of my life right now and work them together for my good and for his glory. Would you pray for me that I would live in that reality, not give in to my fears, those cares and concerns, that secret list that you talked about, that that's where I've been living and I don't wanna live there anymore. Would you just acknowledge that? I'll, I wanna include you in this final moment of prayer. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Thank you. So Lord God, would you take this word and seal it to our hearts and give us grace to believe it and strengthen our faith to rest in it. And we pray that you would continue this great work that you have revealed to us this morning. You are doing a work you began long ago, a work that you will complete. With all our hearts, we long for that day and uh, eagerly anticipate the day that we will see you, Lord Jesus. So thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.